0: Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. And as we round out 2023, uh, my last audio interview of the year will be with somebody who uh, was very uh, important. Uh, oftentimes, people don't realize uh, the work that they put in over time carries over and and then has an effect on somebody, or it just comes at a certain point in their existence when it's absolutely pivotal there's a catharsis of some sort, um, and then sort of a realization uh, uh, that of belonging. And uh, I think my guest does this with in quite a different myriad of settings as a teacher and a mentor, also on the bandstand, where I hope that she and her comrades have uh, many, many opportunities in 2024 and beyond to not just play, but also get paid enough to make a reasonable living as any other profession uh, would dictate Carmen staff welcome back to the Jake Feinberg show
1: thank you so much Jake thank you for having me I really appreciate it and thank you so much for your words that it means a lot to know that um, you know it's it's meaningful in some way what what we're doing as as musicians and artists and you know because it's like you said we don't always get the uh, financial <laughs> uh, reward. Necessarily, although, you know, I I can't complain we it's you know, there are many people who are in that situation, not just artists, but um, it's really good to know that it does connect, which is, for me, the reason I'm doing it, you know, is and probably for a lot of us is really just we love the art form and the art form is even maybe more importantly, it's a medium for connection to humans and the world so. I'm glad that um,
0: comes- yeah, well, it's very healing for me um, and I just you know i, I kind of wanted to ask you as a woman um if you feel like you've been treated uh differently in the music field I recently I had a chance to speak to a couple of younger younger sort of country uh folk rock singers in Nashville, and they had some like uh i I just don't know what else to say, just I mean I'm naive to it just because. I'm not part of it, but uh, they just, you know, without getting into details, um, just some of the behavior towards women is not the way men would be treated in this field. I was wondering how you've dealt with that over time and how you've learned to advocate for yourself.
1: Yeah, that's a great question and one that I think, you know, is being asked a lot now and, well, I guess maybe maybe it's always been asked of women, but
0: no um, big time now though i mean no I, doubt about now
1: yeah um and it's a great question i think i'm i'm still figuring out the answer at least the first. <laughs> <is> right on <laughs> how how do i think or whether i think i've been treated differently or how i've been treated um one thing i'll say is that my awareness or my consciousness of how being a woman has impacted my career has definitely evolved over the years you know there are a lot of things that when i was younger i don't think i necessarily was fully aware of the ways that my you know that aspect of my identity was influencing um the way people perceived me or the opportunities that i was given whether i was thought of for certain things or not and then of course all of that has a cumulative effect so when you have a situation where not even consciously, but, you know, because of the just human nature, I think of, you know, you, we like hanging out with our friends and we like, we like to be around people who we can feel an instant connection with, but Mm -hmm. oftentimes that because of human nature, again, that has to do with implicit bias and, you know, people who are similar to us in some way. And so, and even within the music world, which I think musicians and artists are generally people who are trying to grow and, you know, expand our, our minds. And so hopefully that dealing with this issue is a part of that. But but even still, it's it's just natural, I think, in, in some ways that going along, you know, as I was a student and then afterwards, um, there were times when my male colleagues or, you know, my peers at school or whatever it was, wouldn't necessarily think right away, like, oh, I should, I should call Carmen for this opportunity or this band or this record or something like that. Um, I mean, I went to a pretty small conservatory, uh, music wise, I was in a pretty small program. So I think that helped in a way because Uh there just weren't that many pianists in my year. (laughs) So Uh in some ways it was maybe, maybe we were more, um, had more individual focus on us, but especially for people who are, you know, like, let's say just moving to New York or in a larger situation like at Berkeley or something like that. I really think it does happen a lot that folks just might not, you know, might get kind of passed over and and not seen fully. And and then that, you know, those things accumulate. So then because I didn't get such and such an experience of playing with some, you know, in some band that got to play for some master musician or, or whatever it might be, then maybe I wouldn't have the confidence to think, oh, I should audition for this, you know, program, or, or I can enter that competition. Sure, I'm one of the people who could do that, you know. And then those things build on each other, and it's and it's this kind of series of small situations that add up to different career paths. Now, I don't want to sound like I haven't had an, many amazing opportunities because I certainly have, and I've been incredibly lucky actually. in Well, no, I want
0: want to ask you something, because I was actually coming at it more from, like, you know, and I wonder if, you know, you know, this was much less about their peers' music, music, musically, as opposed to, like, promoters of festivals, and, like, Uh, how they, and I just wonder, like, and maybe in the, I think, I mean, it's fair to say that just having a good academic pedigree and being involved with students, like, That's going to give you a lot of credibility. I wonder in some ways if the jazz circuit, quote unquote, is more fair uh, or just straight ahead than some of the other places. This was just a situation where it was a guy who started to kind of just come on to this artist. She felt uncomfortable, backed out of a festival. And some of the headliners were told that it was the festival and they canceled the festival. Oh and, wow. and 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 this guy blamed this girl, and so there was uh-huh. like a lot of sabotage. And you know, obviously with new media, <laughs> and I'm not saying Carmen Staff is a you're not a drama queen per se, but <laughs> but you know, it's like I just wonder about, um, you know, because at the end of the day, Carmen, like everybody has to figure out a way to make a living. In in my perfect world, you would be like Vince Guaraldi or you know in a big band like playing 250 gigs a year on the bandstand that's to me that's like your your power you know and and I just wonder if you've had experiences in the business where as a woman you were you know in some way made to feel less than uncomfortable or just maybe the jazz world's a little bit you know a little bit tighter than some of the other other genres you know
1: it's a really interesting question because I think it's actually related in a way in that to what I was talking about before, which is that I think I'm like many women who, in some ways, I just haven't put myself out there as much as I think I would need to to have to to be able to answer this question. If mm-hmm. if you know what I mean, like like sure. I I almost you know, I've kind of been pretty under the radar. I mean, obviously, you know, I went to the Thelonious Monk Institute and after that had a lot of doors open for me and a lot of, I got to meet a lot of people where I got into higher profile performing situations. But in terms of my own music and my own career as a leader, I think kind of coming from that situation I was describing earlier it's been harder for me to see myself that way and to be able to put myself out there as, you know, I have something to say, you know, and, and some of that is just fear that all artists have and kind of self-sabotage, I think. And that Absolutely. Feeling, yeah you know, that, but, but I think there is a natural, um, well, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I think there's a way in which young women need, and now we're seeing, you know, these organizations and these older mentors who are trying to give us and, you know, the younger generations of of women and non-binary musicians, these opportunities so that we can see ourselves as being like someone who would approach a festival or be, in, you know, discussing our own music and our own projects and saying, you know, book us on these things. And there's definitely a big change happening in terms of the awareness and the need to to be proactive about booking more more acts who aren't, you know, straight men. But, um, so, so yeah, so I guess I would say I haven't seen a lot of that on a macro or like very explicit way, just because I haven't actually put myself in the situation to
0: fascinating I mean, is that something uh, like, no, it's as a leader, totally. I mean, it, uh, it's, it's, I just wonder, is that, is that an area that like in the, in the coming year or in the, like as a leader taking, you know, to me, like your music, um, your original stuff anyone's original stuff will only take on a life of its own on the bandstand is that like something that you you want to uh, pursue in the coming years
1: yeah it definitely is that's a big goal of mine for this next year is to really you know be less afraid and just step up and do it and try to book more of my own gigs as a leader and and some of that is just a learning curve of figuring out how to do that logistically like how do you actually right you know put one piece of it together with the next piece because it's a little bit of a puzzle you know to to get everybody's schedules lined up and how do you book all of the travel and just you know the nuts and bolts of it too that that stuff takes a lot of time and we're asked to do a lot as leaders especially if we don't like I don't have a manager or somebody else kind of helping me with this stuff so it's sort of kind of just I'm gonna leap and then look <laughs> so no, or, I think uh, that
0: that's something to think about just because I mean you know this is conjecture, but because you um you know like have found a way to make a living in music in this time um to me it would behoove you if you have um some kind of not even nest egg but some savings like consider bringing finding a, a good Uh, not just promoter, but somebody who can do the nuts and bolts. That to me is the, that, that leads into what I've been thinking about a lot, just with my friends who are really pushing the envelope on the road. And um, it just comes down to the fact that you get these transient agencies that, you know, put you on weird bills and don't really care. You know, to me, it's important to have, if you can't afford a team, at least one person who can do Some of the more like monotonous stuff, because ultimately the the biggest crisis with with my friends today and it doesn't pertain it's any genre. It's just they can't solely focus on the the art itself, because if they actually look or leap before they look, they're they're wearing 10 hats. You know, so my my feeling is like if you can find somebody uh, to be an advocate for you, that would be a prudent step.
1: Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. Maybe this is the time. I think, you know, there have been moments in the past when I've asked folks about that like much earlier in my career and sort of been told like, "No, that's not really what you need right now because mm. you really need to just get yourself out there more." But I think but you know, that was a long time ago and I think I probably carried that around with me until until now when actually I'm in a different place and maybe that is something that would be Good. That's um thank you for saying that. No, because- no, you
0: do belong. I'm gonna be like any time that that you're doubting yourself, just envision my voice in your head pushing you forward. Because in this time especially, in this time especially, like there is no roadmap. So right. you need to leap before you look. And you know, trust me, you'll be better off. It'll be it'll be fine. But I think yeah, I wanted to ask you about one of the um People you've been collaborating with. I did this cosmic. I mean, it was one of the most Dow flow interviews I've ever done in my life. Um, and I haven't really connected with her since then. But I we we had a massive connection that day. And, and you're working with her as D.D. Bridgewater. Oh my and god. I wonder. I wonder about like sort of the the things that maybe the that. I mean, you want to talk about what a badass to come up at a time when it was even more intense for. You know, women, and she was just such an advocate and such a great, and I just want you know, musician and singer. And I just wonder uh if you could talk about you know some of the for younger cats who will listen to this, some of the things that that she does uh that you know that have inspired you, not even musically, just to, to advocate for herself.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, she's when I earlier when I was talking about how there are organizations and. You know older musicians more experienced musicians who are who are really trying to um, open doorways for for younger women musicians especially she's one of the people I'm thinking of in a big way because you know she's very actively tried to um cultivate these communities and just herself too as a mentor she's now at this point she has basically two different versions of her band that i play in um that are all women bands one of them is the european musician so when we play the gigs over in europe um she has these two amazing wow. um italian women uh, bassists and a drummer who play in the band there and then there are these two american women amazing also who play when we when we do the gigs in the u.s so she is really cultivating that just even on the bandstand herself in a way that you know, part of it is just there aren't as many opportunities for for elders to be able to have you know as many gigs as there used to be, and all of that. But she's really making an effort to be somebody who's like a you know passing on the wisdom to younger generations of people, and and so she also has something called the Woodshed Network, which is teaching. I'm she, I'm, she probably told you about this when you spoke with her, but um, that's an in person. Um, community experience where she's got all of these women who are starting out in their careers or you know in the middle early middle area of their career and and just helping with all of this stuff that we're talking about about getting music out there networking booking even thinking about how you present yourself on stage because i mean you want to talk about being able to to just own the stage and have that kind of charisma. She's, I mean, I've never seen anybody like her. Right,
0: right, <laughs> I mean, right. Totally.
1: You know, so, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a pianist. And so I, one thing about being a piano player is that you often have your back to the audience or partially to the audience. So it's, it's really big psychologically, actually, I think, that aspect of it.
0: Yeah, you're where, right about that. You're rarely facing head on you
1: know yeah yeah and I mean the the time I complain about it I I'd say the most is when I'm playing with a big band which sometimes <laughs> you know happens <laughs> and, yeah. but this music is really hard I'm trying to read it and I can't see the conductor and you know but but I'm kind of joking but I'm also kind of not like mm-hmm. as a piano player thinking about how do we connect with the audience and how do we you know just our facial expressions and everything um it's a lot less obvious or less you know it's like vocalists this is something that it's like vocalist 101 you're gonna have to think about this and talk about it but piano players don't always have that so so I think like being around Didi has made me think about that a lot more as a pianist
0: how um um, how much does she the trust level between you two I mean does she will she kind of ad lib at some certain times on on gigs or I mean absolutely can you talk about that like the simpatico I mean you've developed it with a lot a lot of different kinds of cats but um how long did it take you guys to sort of you know begin to have sort of te- telepathy on the bandstand
1: <laughs> I mean it was pretty pretty quick I would say that she it felt like she trusted us or or I guess the first couple first time I played with her um was a band that actually I think that was the only gig we did a couple nights at SF Jazz and then and that was I think in like 2017 it was it's right. a while ago now the end of 2017 I I want to say and then we did various different groupings of people and then she, we kind of settled on a particular band that was working for a while before COVID and then once COVID happened things kind of shifted around and that was around the time that Didi made that decision that she wanted to have an all-woman band and so since then it's been um, Amina Scott on bass and Cheers at ten and on drums have been the band in the wow. U.S. Yeah, it's a great band, and Jeez. she. But even before it became that particular unit, which you know, by now we really, I really feel that we're, we, you know, it's like family, or, you know. But exactly. Or even before that, though, I felt right away that Dee Dee was trusting me. You know, at, that she kind of wasn't afraid to just throw the ball to me or or whoever you know the drummer or you know and she's definitely also very much coming out of like an Ella Fitzgerald I think school of okay now I'm gonna sing a duet with the drummer for you know 10 minutes and yeah
0: exactly right right
1: she's and you know rhythm I mean like dance it's all there in her performance so so she's very much you know willing to just go off script and just see what happens and and we're always kind of just ready for anything to happen on stage. And it's so much fun because you know, I I mean I love vocalists. I love working with vocalists in a lot of different ways, but it's really fun when it's when I feel like it's the same kind of level of unpredictability as working with any other musician, which I and of course I understand why it can't always be like that with vocalists, you know, cuz they they produce the music in a very different way than than other, than instrumentalists do, but um, with her, it for sure feels like really free, you know, really could go anywhere. And and sometimes she'll just start singing just another song entirely. <laughs> and so it's just... You know, see, she- I love that.
0: That's totally from the old school. Like, I think that that just keeps it really um, exciting for the musicians. I There's nothing worse. Do you... I mean, how do you talk to if you're, you know, sort of observing a younger musician or a band, and they're, you know, they kind of are in a, what well, you know, a formula trip where they're they're afraid to go fishing, they're afraid to possibly, you know, fail, fall down, uh, make make a mistake. Um, how do you push them, or or how do you get them to loosen up so that they can? feel liberated on the bandstand. I mean, that's the thing that Didi does, you know, it's just, you, you know, it's like you're, as an audience member, you get liberated, but you can tell that she's taking chances and that makes it exciting.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think one of the things she does and it's actually kind of counterintuitive, but I think she, she kind of, um, how do I put this like she she very openly talks to the audience about the idea of of being without a net basically you know really?
0: wow wow
1: you know she'll say like oh my gosh now we're gonna do this one this is my nemesis let's see if I can remember the words to this you know and she makes it very funny and it's right. it's like welcoming us all into this space of let's have fun you know let's like let's look at this like a a game you would play as a kid where you're you know like hungry hungry hippos or something where you're trying to absolutely absolutely
0: yeah you know, like, Candyland, whatever you know yes
1: exactly it's, it's like she kind of creates this space where yes it's a performance and yes she does things that are amazing and you know she'll sometimes get all operatic all of a sudden and sing a really high note or quote you know some thing from my fair lady or whatever but but other times you know it's all it's just kind of very funny and it's all part of this like, she's not taking herself too seriously. And and she's so great at that because it, in a way, it's self-effacing, but it's it's not exactly that. It's more about just letting everyone be kind of in some way part of the circle, part of, like, in this together. Because, you know, that's one thing is, like, not everybody knows. Obviously, she has a lot of fans, and so a lot of people who go to her shows do know a lot about her music at least or maybe jazz in general or music but also she's great at connecting with people who might not really fully know how things tend to work with improvised music or the history Right.
0: The she brings everybody in yeah yeah I love that. Yeah, I love it's, that.
1: yeah it's kind of a way of bringing people in and a way of really um demonstrating in real time what she's doing like she's Very clearly acting out this idea of like, okay, well, I sang the melody and then there was a piano solo, but here, but wait, let me go right over to the drummer and signal, you know, me and you, okay, we're going to be very playful and we're going to do ideas back and forth to each other. And anyone, like somebody who's never seen jazz before, could understand immediately what's happening that this is this playful back and forth. And that doesn't make it any less musical or sophisticated or anything, you know, it's just, it just makes it really clear to everybody. Like, this is what we're doing. We're having a conversation. We're, we're having fun. You know, we're literally playing up on the bandstand together. And, and she does that in a way that is just so open-hearted for everybody that it's not about ego. You know, it's, it's just about this, this beautiful experience that we're having together, whether it's funny or heartbreaking or, you know sexy or whatever it is, she's just different aspects of being humans together through this through this sound that we're making and these movements and all of that on stage and off stage she also goes off the stage and goes into the audience and you know sings directly oh. to people and dances with them and you know it's like very interactive in that sense as well
0: with do you that. guys have like uh a pretty good like you're not you know you're you have good accommodations and i mean yes. you feel, like it's it's like you feel like in that sense you can really cut it loose and be free and have fun because you're not you don't have to worry about you know like you like there are roadies and you're mm-hmm. not lugging your stuff around after the gig then you know packing up and going to the next gig
1: yeah i mean i feel very grateful to be to get to be in a band like this right. or be part of a gig like this you know every time I I can which you know and you know she's got lots of projects and things and but whenever I get to work with her it's like oh she's just going to do everything possible to make it so that we can just make good music together and be okay and take care of ourselves and get enough sleep and you know like she'll she's not and and that's she deserves to be there in her career. You know what I mean? She's
0: absolutely someone
1: who that's, that's where she is in her career. And absolutely. She's she like, if anybody should be having that kind of situation, it's her and, and many more people than her should be in that position. There are many, many elder states, people of jazz who didn't get that kind of um, who weren't, you know, not able to be taken care of in that way or have their band taken care of. Or can you, haven't. can
0: you, what, who, which, which people come to mind?
1: Well, I'm thinking of like someone like Henry Grimes, for example. Oh
0: yeah.
1: Was someone I knew ah. a little bit at near the end of his life. And kind of when I first came to New York, I managed to, well, I actually met him through, not through music, um, through meeting his, his stepdaughter and getting to know her. And it was the funniest thing because the time that I met her, she said, Oh, you're a jazz musician. Uh, you know my my mom's husband is a, is a bass player he's a jazz musician <laughs> like, oh cool that's neat you know like yeah
0: right
1: you, was, <laughs> oh his name. and she goes henry grimes <laughs> like, oh my yeah. goodness yes dude, I
0: mean, dude like a pioneer a pioneer <laughs> yeah. of the instrument you know not yeah. just your yeah that is so epic so then yeah. what was the first uh like like the first musical experience you guys had to be basically was he too why do you think that he never got his due was he just too much in in it for in his world didn't I mean I mean Didi is a you know say what you will I mean she knows how she's she's an incredible I mean she's a great promoter of her own stuff she's like you said she's very affable she brings people in she and that's a hard thing to do for most artists creatives and um anyway you you got to be close with him was it was it kind of heartbreaking that he was unable to get um that kind of recognition or um
1: yeah well i mean i mean there are so many different reasons so many things you know differences between their their careers obviously first of all being that he was really involved a lot of the time in music that was you know i people don't like the term avant-garde but you know music that was very free very left of 70. he was out
0: yeah he was out, out. yeah, yeah, the yeah. The
1: term. and for although i did hear him near the end of his life playing tunes like i went to this gig that he did one time that was i think it was just a duo with a saxophone player and i can't remember who it was right now i'm sad to say but they were playing like bodies. oh, that is
0: so sick they were playing standards and stuff they-
1: standards they play oh
0: my god that's insane that I is know. so great,
1: like, yeah and but you know but like i said for the most part he was playing in settings that are far less accessible than than what didi is doing and you know and she had that whole side of her of doing disco and everything else and being in the whiz and you know she's had Horror, such a yeah, different everything. kind of career and being a vocalist and whereas and you know so it's like he's playing this music that's out he's also a bass player he's a laconic person, you know, he dealt with a lot of issues that made it hard for people to connect with him, I think, um, Mm -hmm. you know, verbally and everything. But, but I mean, just an incredible musician who was part of so many seminal recordings, you know, and played with so many different kinds of musicians, actually, I mean, earlier in his career, he played with Benny Goodman and, you know, and he was on these Sonny Rollins records and everything. And it's like, I just, you know, we're doing the best we can with our jazz or just general music ecosystem, but he really did fall through the cracks. And I know a lot of people helped him and I know there were a lot of reasons, but, you know, I, so just sort of with that caveat, he did, he didn't get the kind of recognition and just financial stability and healthcare and all of those things that someone like that really deserves. And so... And he's that's just one example, you know, that No,
0: I, wanna, I this is really beautiful because uh, I'm not sure if you've ever crossed paths with um, great saxophone player. I hope he's doing well. Don Menza.
1: Oh, not well. No, we've never crossed paths, but I just I know the name. But
0: yeah, so I want to read you this. This was in my uh, fourth <coughs> book of interviews. Uh, this story, he said. Um, <clears throat> I met Sonny Rollins and this is like 1958. I had to quit playing for one year. I just felt like, quote, I have no place in this, in the jazz world. You know, what am I doing here? I was so disappointed coming back to America. He was in Germany in in the war, but he he was in the, he played a lot of jazz out there. I was so disappointed coming back to America and seeing where it had gone. All of a sudden, music was a protest, not a beautiful, creative thing. That whole thing that started it, I didn't. I wasn't part of it. I didn't want to be part of that. So I quit playing. And then Sonny Rollins played in Rochester, and four of us jumped in my father's car and drove to Rochester from Buffalo through a snowstorm. Sonny started, and it was Frankie Dunlop, Henry Grimes, and Sonny, and they started playing at ten o'clock. They were supposed to be done at two a.m. Sonny played till three thirty in the morning. (laughs) It's one of the most incredible nights, and I told myself, "Quote, now I remember why I want to play the saxophone." And he went to the next day, bought a saxophone from a music store in Buffalo and never look back. I mean Henry Grimes, I mean to play for 6 hours with Sonny. I mean the 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 stamina this guy had. I, I I he was so free, man. I I I uh Did you have a chance to play with him at all or no?
1: Yeah, a little bit. Um oh. yeah not obviously you know not not a whole lot but um not as much doesn't matter it doesn't matter yeah i did did get to play with him a little bit um there were a few times where um like i remember once getting to play with him duo at the stone because um this was a time i think alicia spiegel was curating this this was um you know back before the stone was at the current location but um she said, do you want to have a night at the stone? And so I, I said, yeah. And I managed to get Henry to agree to play with me.
0: That is so incredible. legendary.
1: It was, I mean, I have, I don't think I even fully got, you know, just, it how doesn't matter. Mean. No,
0: it does. It just, it's in your soul for for life. So. It doesn't
1: and, matter. And, he, and he, and he came over to my apartment. I remember one time my dad was visiting and I lived in this little apartment in what people sometimes call this the jazz dorm but it's like there are these two buildings in brooklyn that are just have a lot of jazz musicians wow. especially wow. young students people coming out of conservatory there sort of was this network of folks who were who were saying oh you know there's this building and the landlady is pretty friendly to musicians so you can live there it, it's a little little bit complex for different reasons
0: no but, but i got to be honest with you that i'm i'm it's so touching to hear that because that, unfortunately, there were like a 100 of those women and men, you know, 50 years ago, uh, oh, all, yeah. all over New York. So just to hear that there's something left. Yeah, good.
1: yeah, it, exactly. And I think it's still going like that. You know, it's still I haven't been over there in a little while, but there still are many musicians who are kind of have a community. And it was cool because, you know, I had a drum set there. And so we would do sessions. And um, but this one time I had my dad visiting and we were it's just a little studio apartment where the bed is there and then there's the piano i had a baby grand piano yamaha <laughs> yeah no that's like most of the kids. And that's so yeah. and then the drum set was like taking up the rest of the space and then there was like this tiny kitchen and a bathroom right. and that was the apartment and so my dad just sat on the bed while henry and i played duo for an hour straight without talking i remember oh my god and my dad was just there listening and after we finished a little while later, Henry said, "The music is in the air." <laughs> yeah. this is
0: so deep. Yeah, dude, your dad was such a lucky fly on the wall that day.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, he—I think he was really appreciative. My dad's really appreciative of jazz, and he's really—he doesn't play music himself, but he's a big music fan. So sure, I love it. And he's—he—he he gets it. You know, he—he he studied fine art. Um, and he worked as a carpenter to support the family as I was growing up. But he really, you know, always has been an artist and he really understands. I'm really lucky that I have had that kind of support.
0: He get He's not the kind of parent that's going to come in and say, Carmen, your whole apartment is filled with piano and drums. Right? You know, <laughs> you know yeah, he's no, going to see that and be like, wow, this cat is dedicated. You know, he's going to be into it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's got he probably saw my apartment and said you have to clean up your apartment or something. But it wasn't about the fact that it was only the piano and the drums that was right,
0: right 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 right
1: so, um but yeah so but going back to henry i just was so lucky because there were just a few different experiences like that um one time i brought him i don't know if you ever knew about this place there was this little club called puppets that was oh, in never heard of um it. It was in brooklyn it was like in the south slope That when I first moved to New York, John McNeil was doing a regular gig there. Mm -hmm, And and John was somebody I had taken classes from in college and um, was just super supportive and great. He's been a really supportive mentor to a lot of people, actually. Um, And so he gave me this gig playing intermission piano there at Puppets. And (laughs) he'd pay me a little bit to play in between the the sets which was great because it was so old school and I'd never done anything like that before. And, um, and I remember asking Henry, I was like, Henry, I know this is kind of weird, but would you want to come and play with me? During the
0: intermissions? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And he actually, and I think maybe I told John and he was like, Oh, you can play a set, you know, you can do a full set or something, but it was kind of this thing that I just like, and looking back on it, these are the things that I think I, It's sort of like going back to the beginning of this conversation, like, I don't know if I would be more scared to do things like that now, or it was just like the naivety of just being like, well, you know, I don't know. I'll just ask. It can't hurt. But, you know, sometimes now I think like, oh, well, I don't know if this person will be offended if I ask them to do this kind of gig or something or, you know, and and there were experiences like that too, where I probably asked someone to do a gig and they thought, oh. What you think i would do that or something but but henry didn't say that he said sure okay i
0: love <laughs> this man so much
1: no you know what i mean i
0: really want you to know that that you a part of me had that when i when i first started my show i was sort of just so <laughs> ecstatic and and just on this path that i was not even solicit, not even reaching out for interviews but like you know promoting a concert with, you know, these guys on a black jazz label from, you know, it was just kind of uh, open hearted. And, and, you know, sometimes you forget the magic that you have. Uh, he would not have said Henry Grimes would not have agreed to that. If the music was not in the air. And I have a tendency to think that like most people, you know, you prop your greatest strength is maybe your greatest weakness too, where, you know, uh, you are, you do belong. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of sort of, uh, believing in your magic and getting out of your own way. And that's a hard thing for dealing with that on so many different levels in my own life. Mm. Um, and so I really would say, Hey, you know, at this point, and that's kind of leading into what I wrote that just jotted down a couple of <clears throat> themes here. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I was going back through my interview with Terry Gibbs. Uh, the guy is ninety-nine years old. Um, the guy played with Bird. I just found this record. It was it's called Hoot Nanny, which you interpret as folk music, but it was Terry Gibbs Hoot Nanny with mm-hmm. uh, Jimmy Ranny on guitar, and they're playing these folk tunes, but it's all jazzed up. Anyway, he he uh, in the fifties, uh, he was telling the story about Birdland. Uh, you know, he would be the third act um you know be like count Basie, sarah vaughn terry gibbs or you know um, someone in Dinah washington terry gibbs and he said you know the sound of birdland was happiness Mm -hmm. he said it was happy it was just you know there's a lot of reasons for that and i realized that you know not everybody was just there was i mean i know hank mobley was like you know bumming mouthpieces like some people were scuffling but the point is the the sound was happiness and you know when we jumped on this call today uh you know I could feel like we all are you know we're all holding on to stuff in our own lives and then we're seeing sort of just the sort of destruction of democracy before our very eyes and it's a very disconcerting thing you can feel it getting darker it's going to be a very very heavy year and beyond that I just my own my own feeling is like i I just realized that I have to bring that happiness to the world. And I, I, that's what I try to do is make people happy. And I feel like you, how much are you aware or how important do you think it is? Have to have fun with the music is what I'm saying. That it doesn't get too serious. That it doesn't get bogged down in sort of the petty stuff about sophistication and all this other stuff that, that like Henry said, you know, the sound of music is in the air, but it's, it's happy, happiness. And I just want you to riff on that, especially as we move in to, I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but it just feels like incredibly dark times.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know what you mean about it feeling like dark times. It is dark times right now. Yeah, it is. And
0: um, I know, I know I saw a picture of you with Jerry Nadler and I know that that dude would also agree that it's incredibly dark. You know, he's just, a, you know what I'm saying? Like on every yeah. level. And music, musicians are more important than ever now.
1: Yeah, I agree that um, music, art, anything that lets us remember, you know, that we're we're one family. That soul, yeah, yeah, the soul, and that, and not just us, but that we're part of nature too. You know, that I think that's incredibly important. And and somehow it's all it's all one, it's all connected, like um, the happiness and the the playfulness and the joy to me there's a way that that can happen but where it's not escapism necessarily or maybe it's it is an escapism in a way but there's something about it that's not that still feels healthy i guess rather than the the running away from reality
0: um No, no, no. It's in the moment, it's uh, happiness. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, there's a, there's an urgency to it, but it's not like, it's not fear-based. It's, it's playful.
1: Yeah. It's playful. And, you know, like, I guess for me, I've, there have been different points in my life where, like, for example, the music that I'm writing is more kind of, I don't know, maybe somber or meditative you could say um where i'm like more interested in writing slow kind of and music and i love it, I and, love it. Yeah. and i love i yeah i've always i think i've always been a little bit drawn to that kind of a seriousness in the music but also at the same time for me improvisation can be so funny you know it's like people make jokes about this like there's a really great paul f tompkins bit about jazz where he's talking about how you know everybody in the club he's sort of going on and on and and as a jazz musician, I find it hilarious. Although I know people think, oh, we, you know, everyone's talking down jazz and everything, but I I think he must secretly be a jazz fan because of how accurate it is. But anyway, but he's, he's saying, you know, when you're in the club and the bass player has gone through all 24 notes, he can play on the bass. And like, and you, just when you think he's going to go up, he, he's going to go, he goes, bam. <laughs> and then everybody starts laughing. Like, it's the funniest thing in the world. And like, it just, I love that bit because that is what it's like it's like we do hear actual speech it's almost like we're being spoken to by the music and like right right hearing a person say a joke hearing something funny you know absolutely
0: no it's a language and the language exactly and you exhaust all the the notes and then you you know but it's sort of you know in some ways it, it's uh, it's one of those things where I mean I, I love becoming part of the conversation but truly the musical language is it's not an inside joke it's just shared by the people on the bandstand
1: yeah and and the audience too and it's I mean it's um whether you're telling a joke that's funny or you're talking about you know opening up about something painful or whatever it is if it's real you know if you're really saying something that is meaningful and true for you then I think it'll connect with people. And, and I think that's what we need. So it's, we need all of the above. Like, I think we really need humor for me. That's a big part of it is just humor and being able to laugh at just the absurdity of everything, (laughs) partially laugh at it, but also we need to say, you know, we, we, we're feeling a lot and we're going through a lot and you know, No matter who we are right now, it's a time of so much frustration and loss and pain for people and that we need to process that, you know, we have to actually be with it. Now, of course, when you're in a life or death situation where you're actually like, for example, when I was going through cancer treatment, I wasn't processing all of my feelings around cancer right then because I was in the just, you know, survival mode and so there are people who are also in survival mode and maybe for those people right now it's not the time to listen to some dark heavy music that is talking about loss and pain and you know maybe that's it's not the time for that for for them maybe it's time for humor for them and so i think also just everyone um like the idea that we it's okay for us to figure out what we need in this moment and and go with that like if we need to go to a place where people are Playing the just most, you know, the nastiest drum beat that we want to dance to, or something. That's maybe what we need, you know. Yeah,
0: that's me. That's, yeah, I'm with you.
1: Kind of always need. I mean, I, there's kind of never a time when that's not helpful. Actually. I
0: know, I dig. No, but it's different for everybody. Whatever. That's a very interesting point. Do you? I mean, maybe the music that you've been sort of creating recently. To, sort of moodier, you say? It's like a-, a Well, a I, think dark... well that was,
1: I think I've kind of moved out of that phase a little bit because that was a lot of, you know, I alluded to having cancer. And then later in the years after that, when I was really trying to come to terms with the parts mm-hmm. about it that were just not good, you know, it's like, yes, there were things I learned from it. And there were ways that my life changed for the better as a result. But then, there, you know, there's also just, it's like, you know people talk a lot now about toxic positivity there's a lot of that around illness and it's important to just say you know this kind of sucked like <laughs> there were things absolutely about
0: there's nothing not worse than toxic positivity no, exactly
1: agree. and and so I think but music was a way for me to process that somewhat and um and the spiritual kind of side of of thinking about mortality and all of that you know like Mm-hmm. Um, this is when I started to really get more interested in meditation and, um, just generally looking into the, the sort of teachings around death, around illness and death and, and that aspect of what it is to be living. Yeah. And, um, and wow. so so the music was partially kind of informed by that, but now I think that, of course that's still there, but there's also a lot of, um, well, I mean, we're we're right now we're going through a pandemic still, so of course that's that's around. But there's also there are so many other things to to talk about and deal with. One of the things that's been really in my thoughts around music lately has been birds. Just listening to birdsong and and um, like finding what it is in nature that we can connect to, even if it's just we're at home and we're in our neighborhood or whatever. And I to cannot it. believe,
0: you, like, ornithology kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, just, I mean, because, you know, during the early stages, when we were basically shut down, you know, in the early part of COVID, I was walking around with my phone just recording birds in the neighborhood. Oh. Even actually now, just whenever I hear a cool bird, I try to record it, like if I'm traveling or something, and then trying to make little melodies based on that. Because to me, that's so. There's something so playful and sweet about about it, and it's just, it's just cool, you know. Like it's just amazing to hear how birds communicate using a, a different kind of music and language that that we can also still hear and appreciate, even though we don't fully understand what they're saying. Or most well, you
0: kidding I mean. me. If Dolphy was out there listening to the birds. Also, I, <laughs> I just cannot believe you brought that up because this nonprofit that I work at here in Tucson. Um, a woman just donated like and I'm, i'll send you some give me a, a good address i'll send you she sent me like the deepest collection of bird songs from all over the world africa uh, and then there's toad <clears throat> there's toad noises as well but oh cool you're getting birds from the caribbean and then there's pictures of these guys on the back like going out and taping this stuff and yeah like, I, so I'm, the woman kept saying to me i mean for me it's a it's kind of abstract you know like i'm waiting for that funky drum beat it's not there but for <laughs> someone like you it's like she's like i want these to go to someone who could read that will really appreciate them and i swear to you some of this stuff has never been opened it's the headiest collection i have ever encountered in my life so i i would love to send some of that stuff
1: oh my gosh i would love to hear yeah. that yeah, thank you so, love to hear some
0: of that that's really you know, cool i i uh there's three guys I want to ask you about. Um, to me, one thing that, that I think is one one of the things that DD Dee Dee really loves about you, uh, you have really, oh, I just feel like I can hear the blues. You know, like in your music, there's like so much of jazz today. and It's very painted with a broad brush, but it's just got to be palatable or the stuff you hear on the radio, it's made People to talk over. And, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but like it's classicalized in some ways. And there's such blues in your music, and that's part of just who you are, your life experience. But the three cats I wanted to ask you about. Three. they're Well, one of them is. I, well, I, the other two of them I don't listen to a ton, but they're ridiculous. And then one I just. He's like a hero of mine. <clears> Horace <throat> Silver, Joe Sample, Les McCann. And, mm-hmm. you know, those guys, the reason I bring those three up is because uh, in 67, 68, those three guys, Sample with the Jazz Crusaders, Les McCann and Eddie Harris and then Horace Silver, were writing tunes that a lot of rock bands who were faux jazzers could play. There, there was like this crossover going on. You know, you'd hear them play <clears throat> compared to what rock bands would play that, or put it where you want it, or 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 or, or senior blues, or you know, sort of like. Uh, and because the blues makes the music relatable to people that may not have the most sophisticated an ear, I just wonder about if those, if any, if those three have, have been part of your zeitgeist, and uh, you know, ultimately, um, you know like, your story is a beautiful story, and there's, and it's cool because, like, there's been a lot of, there's been some uh, hardship, and, and so there's blues in that, and I, th- you know, I just feel like a lot of cats, it's hard to play the blues when you grow up in suburbia, not that there's <laughs> anything wrong with that, but, you know, unless, when life just puts something into your lap, mm-hmm. and you have to deal with it, no matter what, like you said, I mean, it's the emotions going to come out.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true for sure. um I, you know, I, I'm like a white girl who grew up in Seattle, so in North Seattle, um which I mean, Seattle is a soulful city. But I mean, um, it's
0: a no. I mean, that's it's just yeah. But it, you know, like it's Miles. Miles grew up with money, you know. I mean, only yeah. Miles grew up, you know, like, and Seattle's such a soulful place. So that actually really is, and it, you know, really it is. Know,
1: yeah. There, it's got such a music history besides just grunge. It, it's funny. It's Absolutely. like very much associated with grunge, but but you know we have connections to, you know Quincy Jones and Jimi Hendrix and Ray Charles and you know so, dude honestly yeah. like
0: the ev- the summer of '64 in Seattle at the Longolyn was like you know Larry Coryell and Randy Brecker. I mean all the top cats were burning in Seattle. It was the nastiest music town one of the best in the in the in the world
1: well um yeah i i my mom is not my mom's from new zealand but my dad grew up in seattle so he i don't know how fully he was immersed in you know everything going on but he for sure has been a music fan always and yeah
0: i mean you just sort of it's just sort of like like it's osmosis there you don't even necessarily i mean it just it sort of just leaks into you whether you like it or not
1: yeah. Well, well, and also I was very lucky that growing up there, well, first of all, my piano teacher, when I was um, who I started studying with, when I was six, actually, my brother, I don't know if I told you this story before, but my older brothers were studying piano from this teacher and I just was so interested in it and I really wanted to play. And I was kind of making up little songs and trying to yeah figure things out by ear. Um, my parents asked his teacher, but my brother's teacher, but he said, well, I don't like taking people until they're seven because you know they're they're too young she's too young and but I really insisted so my parents looked for another teacher for me and kind of just by happenstance they found this woman Elisa Mashinsky who was who had come to Seattle via Texas actually Um, but as a single mother she had moved from Ukraine and was this very, very serious Russian school classical teacher who I studied with from age six to when I was 18. Wow. And she was a really important part of my life even wow. that we kept in touch. And so it's not the blues per se, but there's a certain soul that comes from that tradition, that lineage that she had and just who she was. Really?
0: That I th- like a gypsy kind of, it was gypsy soul kind of thing.
1: Yeah, or just, um, you know, I, it's just interesting it's like a way of thinking about music and what it means that there was a depth to it and uh yeah. and she was just so connected you know she was telling me these stories about when Stalin died and her boyfriend who was a violinist and was part of the parade you know that everybody was supposed to do and she was crying and running through the streets saying even you you know how can you you know and like just her life is like a movie she's right kind of, That's all,
0: that's such, so much imprint on that, you know, that's heavy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And she told me those stories about what she went through and what life was like. Um, And, and, you know, and it's interesting because it's, I mean, obviously it's very complex, the whole situation of her growing up in, in the Soviet union and then coming to the United States and her feelings about all of it. And, you know, she studied from Kabalevsky. So she's got this very heavy lineage of. Um, of respect for classical tradition and like all of these ideas about it and everything and so that came into my life at a really young age that feeling about music that it was this very significant way to to think about being human and Mm -hmm. that you know and it was like sort of in an age-appropriate way but still very she didn't pull any punches talking about um, Beethoven and what his what he was trying to communicate in different Music and the suffering that he went through, and like all of these kinds of things, you know. And so I had this sense of music as being about deep, big emotions and big human experiences. From her, from a young age, and then I also was really lucky because of a couple other teachers. I totally veered off the track of Forest Silver and we can. no, no. First
0: of all, that, that that's just me. I, I love you. Go anywhere
1: you want. I just realized it. I'm. This is no, no. A way- I, honestly, I I don't expect it to
0: to be like you know, you know. I listen to the Crusaders every you know every day. Like that's sort of me. But I love hearing about. Oh. It. No, I just love well, the fact oh. that this this woman, yeah, this woman like you know to me. When you first said that, I'm like, "Oh, she's going to be like this, you know, demagogue, classical teacher and wrapping her knuckles and you know, right, and, then, right. you know, and like, you're like, no, actually scary. she's like totally deep into the human humanistic quality of it all, too. yes,
1: yeah. I mean, she I think of her as my musical mother, you know, she was just so nurturing. And she saw me, she saw something in my kind of soul or something that that she felt was, you know, she, she connected with me in a way that nobody else in my life really could, or that I couldn't, you know, right. with anyone else. And which is also another argument for why it's so it's so important for young people to have adults who aren't their parents in their lives, who are kind of also nurturing them, you know, mentoring. Absolutely.
0: Them, whether it's Absolutely. Like or, Absolutely. But,
1: But anyway so so she was there and then also shortly after that my brother started studying saxophone from don lanfear who was a great great teacher educator in seattle who actually had with like in woody herman's band and he lived with uh with charlie parker for a while um did he live with bird he definitely lived with sonny rollins and he was dating Chan Parker before she ended oh up with Bird. So, you know, he this was is like,
0: on. Going. Is, is this cat still with us he, or he's No,
1: bad. no, he passed away several wow. years ago as well. And and so did his wife who we knew at the time, Midge, but, but he was a fixture in the Seattle scene. And like, he has a record with Larry Coriel and he actually, he was the one who introduced me to Horace Silver. So we finally got back to Horace Silver. <laughs> Horace came to town and played at Jazz Alley. Don Lanfear took us there my brother and I and and I was a piano player and I was starting to play in also in the jazz band I also want to shout out Clarence Acox who was a really important person in my life who's a high school band director in in Seattle from my high school Garfield High School another person who brought this whole he was from Louisiana so he brought this whole other tradition and approach and to music into our lives and um, so I was very lucky you know and uh, so I was saying when Horace Silver came to Jazz Alley I was already playing a little bit of jazz and was in the jazz band at the time and my older brother and I would play duets at old folks homes and stuff like that and so Don Lanphier took me up to Horace to introduce me to him and they started reminiscing about all this you know the times they would hang out together and Horace Silver said or Don said you know you, you used to make all these different Food, like you would they were starting to talk about like the meals they would have right, and everything.
0: Yeah, just, oh, yeah. stew, yeah, oh, totally. yeah,
1: it was so cool. It was so great. And and just like this idea of, okay, these are people, you know, yes, they're he's there's a famous person who I have his recordings at home and all of that, but also like, you know, they're they're human beings who've been able to actually do something really amazing and great in this music. And and they were, and he was so, so generous to me, you know, and gracious. Same with Ray Brown. I got to meet Ray Brown also. Get out of
0: the- here.
1: Same thing. Just, please incredible. tell me
0: that. St- Dude, I was talking, about, it's funny. I've been texting with Jim Keltner a lot because I found this Don Rand, this Don Randy record. I'll send you a clip. It's like Hirsch Hamill and Gene Stone. This is going back to like mid early sixties, West coast jazz and so freaking burning and I was I was asking Kelner why uh, Hirsch Hamel uh, doesn't wind up in the conversation with Ray Brown and Gary Peacock. But anyway, mm-hmm. I, Ray Brown man, the, the dude was just the coolest cat and the baddest the baddest player ever.
1: Yeah, I mean, just so yeah, funny. I mean, as soon as I started hearing people like that, like Ray Brown, I was really into Oscar Peterson. You know, when I just. Right. So, you know, I've been studying with this Russian classical school teacher and then my brother started playing saxophone. So Don Lanfield would come over and hang out with us and um, Carl, my brother Carl was listening to, you know, Stan Getz and Sonny Rollins. And then I, I started listening to them too. And Oscar Peterson trio with Ray Brown, Horace Silver. Um, we listened to Cold Duck Time, you know, we were so. Exactly. So, yeah. There you it, go.
0: The
1: the bluesiness yeah like you like swing blues um funk like all of that just i don't know it just spoke to to me and to us and i think just it's just so i mean it just you just feel it in your body you know and it at least i i did you know and i i just really was so drawn to it um you know just you know no i was gonna say i dude if you're not listen if i want to
0: get you into if you haven't checked him out a lot or you just uh maybe you're not into him but to me the guy is like from another world so cool joe sample you mean yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah you know it's interesting because he's somebody who people sometimes say oh it sounds like you checked out joe sample and i'll kind of go well you know." I actually didn't really check him out that much. And I think obviously I've heard him, but I think that I must be getting, receiving influence to secondhand from him, (laughs) you know?
0: No, Um, no, I I'll tell you exactly what, number one, well, major, you're a very percussive player. mm
1: -hmm. And he
0: is that, uh, he, I mean, the, the, when the jazz, the jazz crusaders made some incredible albums as an acoustic band and they were, Buster Williams played on those. And, uh, you know, and uh, Wilton Felder played sax, and Joe was always incredible playing that acoustic piano. But when they dropped, when they dropped the Jazz Crusaders and just became the Crusaders, mm-hmm. Joe Sample was playing electric piano, and you know, I mean, it was just the filthy. And then he would still, during the same time, he would switch back. There's an album you should check out uh, called San Francisco. It's with Harold Land and Bobby Hutcherson. And uh, Mickey Roker's on drums with Joe. Anyway, just this just the funkiest, soulfulest cat. And you're a very physical player. So I I to me it's like that um like there's just this you just basically broke it down. I mean, you've been touched by the elders. So you you know, the, the the sax cat that your brother played with and 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 hanging with Horace and hanging with Henry Grimes and playing with Henry Grimes and I mean, to me, the, that, what you said before was so beautiful because these guys, they, we tend to put them on a pedestal because of their brilliance. And in yeah. fact, they're just human beings that happen to create something very unique and successful. Uh, and I just, I always love bringing it back to the humanistic part of it. And there's plenty of musicians who are not really good people. But you, exactly. you treasure the ones that are
1: yeah and even and also you know it's like saying someone's not a good person i mean it's obviously it's true that there are many people for whom it's a lot harder to you know people it's a cliche to talk about the like separate the art from the artist and all of that but right you know it's it's um and now i'm wading into this (laughs) this whole thing but i just want to say i guess like you know we're all so complicated we're all so you know layered there's just there's so much to everything so human. much
0: so much and then yeah. and, and then it's a disservice not from the musicians but to for people to sort of make everything so simple yeah. on that level is is, is just, it's just it's sort of a disservice to the to the human to the human
1: being and I think you know my take on it is uh, I mean it's always changing but a way that I think about it is sometimes like well if I can listen to this person's music and still enjoy it then Okay. And if I can't, then, then that's, that's a shame because, you know, it's less to enjoy, but then I can't, you know, so it's sort of like maybe a, just a personal thing, a personal, um, you, what, like, what is your actual gut reaction when you hear the music knowing whatever you know about them? And if you, if it's good, then, okay. You know, so I guess, must I, I mean, be
0: really, it, just, it just sort of popped into my head. It must be fascinating because you know so many musicians and you are yourself a musician uh that I, yeah i'm you know like that would be an interesting situation but either way it's like you know i i my 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 uh hope for you carmen in, in this coming year is that you continue to recognize that you are you know really part of the lineage of american music and you know you have helped me a lot I, I i feel so grateful to have seen you that one time and i'm always here for you no matter what uh Thank I, I, you, Jay. I, I really just want you to continue the most horace silver would say this too and joe sample and less less mechanic mccann is still here i mean he's still with us yeah. um yes. it's just keep moving straight ahead <laughs> straight ahead don't get stuck you know i mean as long as you can continue to, to keep moving forward in your craft, in your life, uh, and not suppress any kind of emotion, uh, and get it out of your system. Um, you know, you're a very important person. So, um, and I look forward to doing set three with you. We, I have to get, I yeah. have to jam out, we have a lot more, plenty more to get to. So we'll definitely pick this up in the new year.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jake. I always feel like it's a, you're, it's a therapy session. <laughs>
0: That's what Kelder says. Kelder's like, you're my shrink, man. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it is interesting, you know, cause you do really weave so many things together and it's, it's like, yeah, this, this is interesting to think about how all these threads are connected and, and what we're going through right now and why we're doing what we're doing and everything. It's, I'm, I'm really grateful to have this conversation with you and, and as an ongoing conversation, it it is really I, important.
0: It's really, I just, I'll leave you with a quick story before you go. I, I, I was in Boise with my family over the Christmas holiday and a <laughs> really great piano player went to go see him the first night it was there and we did a one of these kind of interviews well over a year ago i got to, he was playing at a steakhouse There, a really tasteful player you can play anything and a sweet guy and uh he was like um you know jake i uh i don't tell people this but you know i was sexually abused as a young boy and it didn't come to the to the forefront for about five years when my family found out about it, and obviously they were it was hard it was traumatic and uh and they didn't know how to handle it and and he goes you know but we did our interview and i i sort of uh superficially mentioned that that music really helped me during a very hard time in my youth without going into specifics and he said my dad heard that interview he called me we haven't always had the a, a real great relationship. And, and his dad was like, just, he just was so, uh, sorry that he couldn't have done more for him, uh, more to the point they now talk all the time and their friendship, has, they've, they've been healed. And, wow. and so I, I, in my own way, I'm a healer. And I've had moms come up to me and say, Jake, you know, I learned more about this drum, this, my buddy Austin, uh, I learned more about my son in your interview than I ever have through him. So, mm. and that stuff, like you said, it's happening all the time. And you, and you know, and, and I'll just leave you with one final thing. Like Steve, like when you're on the bandstand and you're, I don't know, drifting away or, you know, questioning something and, you know, just know, like Steve gets said, people are, everyone is always watching even when you don't think they're watching. Mm. So you never, you always can make an impact. So bless you my friend and you keep it up and we'll uh and yo, send me uh send me your address i'll send you all that ornithology stuff
1: oh well that would be great thank you you're gonna love that yeah i'm excited to hear that yes yeah really exciting thank you very much happy new
0: year my friend i'll talk to you soon
1: new year talk to you soon Bye.
0: bye